You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you would, please turn to two different places in your word today. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42 is where we're going to begin. Mark 14, 32 through 42. And then if you want to put your bulletin or some other marker in Hebrews 12. Uh, We're actually going to dip back into Hebrews this week for our our second point. But Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. So Mark 14, 32 through 42. And then Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Um, and as you're turning, and before we get deep into the context of the message today, I, I want to I give us a preface today. We're going to be talking about trading sorrow for joy. And goodness knows, in light of the events of the last 36 hours, that seems to be a daunting task. Goodness knows that for many in our church and, and many in our community over the past year, or even the years, this last one, to consider trading in sorrow for joy. And I want to say to you pastorally for just, and if I have ever, for any of you in these four years, or if you're watching today and you've been a part of a community that I've led uh, in some way, shape, or form prior to this church, if, if I've ever led you in this discussion of turning sorrow to joy into thinking that what I have suggested that the Bible teaches us is that it's a one-time thing that we just trade it in and we're done with it, uh, then I apologize for, for leading you in that way. Because much like trading our despair for hope, much like trading in our hate for love, much like next week of trading in our worry and anxiety for peace, trading in our sorrow for joy, becomes a daily continual thing it happens at the moment it happens at the outset it happens in the 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 immediate hours and and days that follow a tragedy or a trauma or an event like this but then it has to continue with us that we have to continually be prompted particularly as believers to knowingly choose to trade in sorrow for joy in Psalm 30, David is talking about um, the, the beauty of God, and, he, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a psalm, it's a prayer that he wrote to, um, to dedicate the temple. And he's contextually speaking in the very beginning parts of Psalm 30 about even God's discipline for him. But as he speaks of that, he makes this statement, it's a statement of you who have been longtime church persons will remember, maybe you didn't know it came from Psalm 30, but he talks about the fact that sadness or weeping comes through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the intent of that framework is to, to remind us that it's literally a night and day thing in our lives, that there are times when we are in the night, there are times when we are in the darkness, there are times when we are in the unknown. But the morning is not far off. And in the morning, we trade our sorrows, our grief for joy. Not necessarily a literal morning of, of the day, but that moment when God begins to pierce through those things. And I know even thinking about today's message, I, the, and yesterday in particular, is this the time to deliver a message of sorrow turning into joy? Is this the time to talk about that, that Jesus has done this and can do this for us? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about what time is greater? 
The time to know that Jesus can do this is the time that we are in the most seriousness of sorrow and grief. It is the time to be reminded that he has not only done this for us and is doing this for us, but he is the example of how we're to do it. So we're going to talk about this today, beginning with Mark 14, 32 through 42. Our beginning statement, our beginning point is this, that we see Jesus enduring in sorrow. Mark 14, 32 through 42, read along with me or follow along with me if you will. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Matthew and Mark have very similar accounts of this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Luke, when he recounts this moment, he has no mention of the word sorrow or Jesus feeling great sorrow, but he does speak in Luke twenty-two forty-three 43 of an angel of the Lord appearing to strengthen Jesus, and that by its own self implicates that Jesus was indeed in great sorrow if he needed an angel to come and strengthen him in that moment. John has the high priestly prayer of, of John 17 that's in the upper room, but all he does is simply mention Jesus and the disciples entering the garden. He does not speak to this. So Matthew and Mark are the two gospels that we have that in most detail describe this. And there's lots going on here in this event from verses 32 through 42. There's Jesus' prayer for the hour and the event to pass. And we've been there, haven't we? God, if there's any other way, God, God, if there's any other way that this can work out, this can happen, that this situation can resolve itself, Lord, Lord, we pray that. But then we also see that right on the heels of that, Jesus then says, but not my will, but yours. That as he humanly prays for that, he also humanly prays submission to God's will. We have the issues of the disciples sleeping when they should have been watching and praying and any of those points could make a great message. But we want to focus today on this condition of Jesus found there in verses 33 and 34. And I want to read them again so we can focus in on that. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. 
distressed, troubled, sorrowful. First two words describe for us a deep, lingering discomfort and anguish and distress. They describe intense emotion, intense feelings. Uh, It even is the description of amazement. The King James says it that way, that he became sore amazed, meaning that his amazement at the situation and what was about to transpire uh, was totally overwhelming him. And and we might not think of amazed being a word that you would use in a negative sense, but we use it that way quite often. If I were to stand here before you today and say that, that I am amazed in a country with the resources and the wealth and the abilities that we have, I am amazed that we have so many children in the foster care system. I am not amazed in a positive way. I'm amazed in a negative way. And so Jesus was amazed. He was distressed. He was troubled. But ultimately, he was sorrowful. And that word sorrowful is a word that describes being crushed. By grief and sadness. Being crushed by grief and sadness as if there were no escape from it. It's not lost on us or should not be lost on us. This garden called Gethsemane, this name Gethsemane is a a word that translates into oil press. A place where apparently they gathered those olives and they pressed them or crushed them to extract the fine oil from them. That in the garden where olives were crushed, Jesus was crushed. Then in the the garden where the, the fine olive oil was being crushed and brought out from those things, the fine humanness of Jesus was being crushed out of him. And he's literally here crushed in sorrow. You say, what is he, what is he crushed in sorrow over? I, I think there were many things. I think, obviously, the impending hours that were upon him. The knowledge of what he was getting ready to go through, the, the, the betrayal, the rejection, the death, everything that he would experience there. I, I also believe from a very real theological sense, he was crushed at the thought that he was going to become the full weight of sin for all mankind. That he who knew no sin, that he who had never sinned, that he who had never dealt with guilt and shame and all the things we deal with with shame, he was going to feel that fully, not only for himself, but also for the whole world. And in that he was crushed. He was sorrowful, overcome with grief. Philip Yancey, in a, in a writing that he did for the book, Our Daily Bread, which is a little booklet that we often have out here for you to pick up, a devotional book. He wrote this several years ago for that booklet. I find it strangely comforting that when Jesus faced pain, he responded much as I do. That in the garden the night before crucifixion, Jesus did not pray, Lord, I'm so grateful you've chosen me to suffer on your behalf. No, he experienced sorrow and fear, and abandonment, and even desperation. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Mark, reminds us of this. He says, if our souls be at any time exceedingly sorrowful, let us remember that our master was so before us, and the disciple is not greater than his Lord. Jesus crushed, Jesus sorrowful, Jesus surrounded. During it in the Garden of Gethsemane. But understand that Jesus had full knowledge of the situation, did he not? 
Had he not repeatedly said to his disciples this was going to happen? Had he not repeatedly told his disciples it is written that the Son of Man will go through this? And I think that's very important for us to understand that knowing God's will does not alleviate his sorrow. We often think if we just knew everything in advance, that would be beneficial to us. And if you knew everything in advance, but did not have the ability to change the outcome, Jesus knew what was coming in advance. He, he knew the plan of the Father. He knew what he was going to. He also knew he was not going to be able to change that outcome, that it would be God's will that would be done. If you and I knew what was coming in advance, but also knew we could not change the outcome, would we not still have sorrow? Would we not still be crushed by grief? If these communities on Thursday night knew what was going to happen and knew the loss of life, knew that, that three days later, two days later, that in a factory where there were 110 people, only 40 have been found? Even if they knew that, the sorrow, the grief, the crushing, the despair, all of that would still be there. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and yet he was still sorrowful. And his response here is crucial to our understanding that he was fully human and fully God. If he's only God, then in the garden he's faking human emotion. He's manipulating it. If he's only human, then he's powerless in the situation to come through it and come through it on the other side. But if he is both, if he is both fully human and he is fully God, as we teach from this core of Christianity, his experience of sorrow is real, but his perspective is otherworldly because he is God. And I say otherworldly because to face that sorrow, to face that grief, to face that sadness, and then to be able to say, but not my will, but yours, and to go through it and push through it as he did, is not an earthly perspective. As a man, he hoped and prayed his sorrow would not come to fullness, but as God, he knew of the necessity of his obedience. And so in Mark 14, we see Jesus enduring in sorrow. And so we logically ask, why? I mean, we, we understand the big theological picture that he had to go to the cross and he had to die for our sins. And, but, but why specifically did he endure? And that's where we then turn to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 for our second point today. That he was enduring in sorrow in the garden, but he did so because he was endured. He had endured for joy. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We haven't gotten to Hebrews 12 yet in our walk through Hebrews. We'll get there after the first of the year. And when we revisit these verses, I'm going to talk more about the issues of the weight and the sin and the race and the endurance that we have. But here we're talking about his endurance, that he endured for joy. The word endured, sometimes I think we uh, humanly think about the word endured and we think it means that we just kind of have to grin and bear it. 
I'm, I'm going to endure this, and I'm just going to get through it. That's how I often think about dentist visits. I'm just going to get through it as rarely as I go. <clears throat> but the word endured in the scripture is not just that we grin and bear it and get through it. It, it is that we remain in a situation and remain under a circumstance, but we remain in it with hope, with an active hope that that circumstance, that situation is not going to be the end of us or the end of, of our, our hope, our joy, and anything else. And so his hope, his enduring, was the joy that was set before him. Jesus now becomes not just simply our Savior and Lord, but by the, the, the weight of these two passages of enduring in sorrow and doing so for the joy set before him, he now becomes our example for trading sorrow for joy. He becomes the human Jesus who endured, went through it with an act of hope that God would do something, and he did so with the joy that he knew he would have and possess. What was this joy that Hebrews talks about? There are two historical schools of thought. One is this, that Jesus in the garden, Jesus at the cross, possessed joy even in the midst of being crushed because he knew what the outcome of his obedience would be. I think biblically there's a case to be made for that school of thought. We know that he said things like that he came to seek and save the lost, that he did not come to call the righteous but the sinner, that he said that for God so loves the world, he gave his only begotten son, that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I think one of the most beautiful places in the scripture where we see that Jesus knew of this joy of what would result of his obedience was in Luke chapter 4. Beginning verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty or freedom those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I believe it's one of the most beautiful, concise, perfect places in the Gospels where we see that Jesus had joy even in the midst of his suffering, even in the midst of his being crushed, even in the midst of being at the cross and on the cross himself. He possessed joy because he knew what would be the outcome. He knew that over the next 2,000 years that there would be people who would hear this good news, people who would hear this gospel, people who would experience him and experience the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, and they would have their lives changed, not just from being bad people to good people, not being from immoral to moral, but have their lives changed, being brought out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And he had that knowledge. And he knew those things would happen. And for that, he endured the cross for that joy. The second school of thought is that Jesus knew that there would be a joy that he would possess later after the cross because he knew God would raise him. Certainly we see that in places 
like Luke 18, verses 31 through 33, taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus had a joy set before him because he knew God would not abandon him to the grave. He knew God would not abandon him into death. And so you might say, well, which is it? Is it the joy that he knew would be the outcome of his death and on the cross? Or is it the joy that he knew he would have with God once he was resurrected? I say to you, the scripture makes the case that it is both and. That Jesus endured the sorrow. He endured the shame. He endured the grief. He endured all of that in the garden, all the way up to the cross. And he endured it because he knew the joy that he would have from seeing you come to faith in him and you have your life changed from death to life. And he endured all of it because he knew there would be a joy that would be his forever when God would raise him from the dead and would not abandon him to the grave. You say, how then does Jesus become our example in this? Well, we have to acknowledge there is a little bit of difference in Jesus and us in these moments. For you and I, we do not often know the results of immediate joy in our crushing sorrow. It is difficult for us to be in the midst of it. It is difficult for those communities this morning to wake up and rise up and look around them and see the devastation and the destruction, the loss of life, and the the lack of knowledge about where some of their loved ones are. It is beyond difficult for them to wake up this morning and go, oh, I see how God's going to do something great out of this. I know where the joy is going to come out of this. Because they lack, we lack what Jesus had in knowing what would come as a result of the cross. That is why we, the scripture says, walk by faith, not by sight. We look at the situations that are crushing us, that are are grieving, that are sorrowful to us, that that are making us feel like, as that word describes, that there is no escape. And we walk into those things and through those things with faith, believing that even as dire and as hard as they may be, God has a way and a means of bringing joy through those. Perhaps it's a joy and a testimony that we'll one day be able to give. Perhaps it's a, it's a joy and a, an ability for us to connect with people who are going through similar things and provide them hope and, and joy in those moments. We, we don't often know, but I do want to say this to you that I believe with all my heart, God makes a way. He makes a way. He makes a way from the moments that you're crushed in your grief, that you're crushed in your sorrow, and he makes a way here on this earth for you to know joy at the end of it. But then secondly, we are like Jesus in this way, in that we know that there will be one day that our joy will be complete. That there will be one day, either by our leaving this world or by him coming to this world before it is our time and setting up his kingdom, that in that moment for all of eternity, only joy will exist. 
There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death and grief or anything else. That in that moment, only joy and the joy of the Lord will exist. And because we know that truth, and because we believe that truth, then we are prompted to look at Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, and daily trade our sorrow for his joy. Because we know that which is written around us is not the end of the story. Now again, I want to say to you, I am not intending for you to say or to believe that with trading despair for hope or hate for love or sorrow for joy or next week anxiety and worry for peace, I'm not intending to say to you or even to myself that you just do it once and that's all you have to do it. It becomes a choice. It becomes a choice for you and for me that however many years we are here and faced with those things, that we willingly take those things and trade those things for the things of Jesus, for the fullness of his hope, for the fullness of his love, for the fullness of his joy, for the fullness of his peace. And it becomes something we have to do continually. It's been 17 years last month that my father passed away. And as I always tell people when I'm counseling them pastorally through times of grief, I'm not ever going to tell you it gets easy, but it gets easier. But it's not ever easy. That 17 years later, a a commercial, a song, a a, a news story, or, or just seeing something in my house prompts me, reminds me, brings me back to memory, and and I fall back into that grief and that sorrow. And in those moments, 17 years later, I trade them for joy. That's been two years for my mom, and I do the same thing for her. You and your grief, you and your sorrow, you and your your moments, your times, whatever they may be, however they came about, whether they came about of, of our own choices and volition or something else or somebody else or just seemingly something that just happened. It never gets easy, but it gets easier. But in those moments where it's not easier, we trade. We trade sorrow for joy. And we purposefully and consciously Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, and how he endured for the joy set before him. I mentioned Psalm 30 earlier where it talks about the joy coming in the morning. And the end of that psalm says this, and I'm reading today from the New Living Translation on this because I want it just to be very simple and very plain. David writes at the end of Psalm 30 in verses 11 and 12, You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. There's this beautiful piece of Hebrew here. In this phrase that he's taken away the clothes of mourning and given David the clothes of joy. In that he is describing that God has literally bound him with joy. That he, he's, not, he's not just slipped on an overcoat of joy. Or a nice comfy baggy sweatshirt of joy. 
that God has wrapped him tight, that God has bound him in joy. When I read that this week, I immediately thought of Gabriel. And when Gabriel was a, was a child, a small child, he, he had a condition where he did not like to have his arms and his legs in. And so he often slept in this X position. And if, I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep in an X position, but it's not very comfortable and, and you don't get a lot of rest. And so we had to, for a season in his life, wrap him in this sack <laughs> where we put his legs together, put his hands together, got him tucked in, wrapped it tight, and kept him from moving so that he could begin to train his body to sleep in the right way and get the rest that he needed. And you might be well in your imagination to imagine the first few times that we did that with Gabriel, it was met with a lot of resistance. I've got several videos of him laying on the couch, bound up in that, and that, that, that face wrinkled up, and the tears flowing, and that struggle, because he wanted to be where he was comfortable, not knowing that where he was comfortable was not good for him. God binds us. He wraps us. He envelops us in, our jo- in his joy because he knows sometimes that we think sorrow, as weird as it may sound, almost seems comfortable. And yet he knows it is not good for us. He knows that we process and we have those moments where it's not easy and we have those memories and we have those times even 17 years later where that sorrow floods in on us and crushes us. But then he says to us, what is best for you is for me to bind you up in joy. And that is what he longs to do for you and for me and for all who would come to him today. Take whatever situation of sorrow you're crushed by. To take whatever situation of grief that envelops you. Whatever situation of sadness that maybe even to this point you thought, I will never be able to overcome this. And he extends to us through Jesus this truth that in this moment, and in a moment this afternoon, and in a moment tomorrow, and in a moment a week from Friday, and in a moment in March of 2022, and in a moment whenever you choose, from here on out the rest of your days, you and I can trade sorrow to be bound up with his joy. Jesus is not only our Savior and our Lord, but he is our example. For he endured in sorrow, for the joy was set before him. May we long to know, to walk in, to live in the joy of the Lord as our strength. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.